นโมทัสสะกุวาตัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะกุวาตัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะกุวาตัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังมังสังขังนมัสสะแล้วก็ 
and that I like that suggestion of you know, putting attention in the centre of the chest, listening from there. Obviously, our ears are in our head, but you know, to try listening from the centre of the chest and receiving without all the liking and disliking that can be creating so much disturbance and does for much of the time for many people. At a time when the most dominant global religion is egotism, the activity of liking and disliking has taken on the force of a devotional practice. checking how many likes and dislikes they've got or is there an opportunity to express a like and dislike and can become compulsive and very noisy and disturbing. So on occasions like this the invitation is to find if we can set the liking and disliking, agreeing and disagreeing to one side and simply listen to what's being offered and participate in so doing. So the first question this evening is how can one practice anatta whilst still providing and being responsible for a family without feeling conflicted? As followers of the Buddhist way, we all are familiar with going for refuge to the Buddha. And it's important that we know what we're doing when we say, I go for refuge to the Buddha. And on the level of form, when I say I'm going for refuge to the Buddha, I know I'm referring to this human being who lived in India 2,600 and something years ago and after having made tremendous effort and paying attention to the experience of unsatisfactoriness saw through the veils of delusion and discovered the root cause of suffering and in that discovering there was a letting go and his realisation was the possibility of being completely free from suffering. And so this was a human being who walked on planet Earth, who lived in northeast India 2,600 something years ago. And after that realisation, spent the rest of his life sharing the benefit of that realisation. And so we feel very grateful to that historical character. And, and it's symbolised by the Buddha images that we have which first appeared in Afghanistan about 600 years after the Buddha passed away when the Greeks arrived there and introduced the people living in that part of the world and to these images. And so the first Buddha images look something like Greek gods and, and wearing togas and with top knots. And, and so we bow to the Buddha image because it reminds us on the level of form of this possibility this human being that lived in India all those years ago. However, just understanding the Buddha on that level, level of form, is very partial. That's 
that's a historical figure and, and we could get some confidence from believing in that person and believing that the Buddha was realized and getting some energy from that. However, when I personally, when I go for refuge to the Buddha, what's in my thinking, what's in my approach is more the spirit of what it means to go for refuge to the Buddha. In a world, again, so dominant with materialism, we can be overly impressed by the forms, the conventional aspects of Buddhism and the Buddha's teachings. But what does it actually mean? What was the Buddha's consciousness? That's what really mattered. It's not the person who was born and died, although that was relevant, but there's lots of people who are born and die in the world. What's most relevant is that the Buddha was awakened. Full embodied realization of selfless awareness. That's the thing that I go for refuge to. So if we're aware of that, the, the form, yes, it's got its place. However, the dimension of the spirit is what I orient my life towards. That's what I emphasize. So I go for refuge to the Buddha. That means the Buddha is the most important thing. That's where I seek security. I seek security in the Buddha. And what is that Buddha in which I seek security? It's the possibility of the realization of this selfless, just knowing awareness. So if we have that appreciation of this path of practice and then we're looking at these this question of how to cultivate the Buddha's teachings on anatta, I'm sure this is not purely an academic question. It's how to apply ourselves to this consideration. The great question, one of the three great questions that matter more than anything else in life. The first question is where do we find real stability, which the Buddha addressed in his teaching on anicca. And the second question is where do we find real satisfactoriness? And the Buddha resolved that and gave us the Four Noble Truths. And, and then the third great question is, what is the nature of self, actually? And that's the teaching on anatta. And so, to apply ourselves to this question and at the same time be raising a family, making a living, providing security for those who depend on us, how do we do that without feeling conflicted? Well, the reason I comment there about the spiritual dimension of going for refuge and not just the form dimension is because in the spiritual dimension there's the possibility for receiving all conflict. It doesn't matter if there's a feeling of conflict. It's, it's like all activity and all frequencies on the spectrum of consciousness or all activity and all dimensions of awareness potentially can be received. Selfless awareness has the potential to receive everything. The mundane activity of preparing a lunch for the kids to go to school tomorrow or doing the washing and taking the washing out at the right time and hanging it out or more refined activities uh, sitting, formal meditation or more subtle 
contemplations or or if you have the opportunity fasting for a few days and doing your regular qigong exercises and formal meditation and experiencing uh, expanded open-hearted feeling of participation in life from the coarse mundane to the refined and everything in between selfless awareness can receive all of it that's why that's why going for refuge to the buddha is so important that nati me saranang anyang there is no other refuge for me than the buddha buddho me saranang orang the buddha is the supreme refuge when we say these things nati me saranang anyang buddho me saranang orang what do we what do we mean by that why is there no other refuge for me other than the buddha because the most important thing in terms of reality the thing really worth focusing on giving emphasis to is that selfless just knowing awareness that's the buddha that's and why is it the most important thing because that selfless just knowing awareness has the potential to receive everything there doesn't have to be any conflict there doesn't have to be any disharmony it can be the coarse there can be the mediocre there can be the interesting there can be the boring there can be the subtle there can be the refined as so i was saying all these frequencies and in the spectrum of consciousness can potentially be received if we're emphasizing awareness itself if we're emphasizing the world for emphasizing and distracted and entertained by and overly valuing the activity all the liking and the disliking and the wanting and the not wanting and all the stories we tell ourselves and all the perceptions we have of ourselves and each other if that's what really matters well then there's just tedious hard work pointless that's why in the dhamma chakra sutra we were just chanting tonight they were talk about the two extremes of getting lost in liking and lost in disliking the pointless he said there are dead end but then the middle way that is the knowingness of the mind moving towards liking and disliking and that's what's worth emphasizing not te me so nang anyang buddho me so nang orang the buddha is the most important refuge and that's why we start the day by bowing to the buddha end the day by bowing to the buddha because this just knowing awareness matters more than anything else in the forest tradition in thailand those of you that are familiar with it will have probably heard about the encouragement to meditate on buddho buddho and, and keeping with the breathing in and breathing out and and then you ask the teacher what does buddho mean and they say it means the one who knows or the thai words do a puru which literally translates as the one who knows personally i find that a little bit dodgy because it implies there is a somebody knowing uh, i would shy away from that personally and encourage using the word knowingness or awareness itself so if we emphasize that and even if there is conflict even there is disharmony then to know that it's like if you strike two notes on a piano and there's the discordant and that's called disharmony and but there's also the knowing of the disharmony so if we're caught up in the world 
then it can be extremely tiring, and I'm sure we all know that, but with having a refuge in the Buddha itself, then there's a possibility that we can get a perspective on that. It doesn't mean to say that we're going to just immediately snap out of it. There may be some rare beings in history who have the accumulated barami to hear the teachings and awaken and snap out of delusion, but for the rest of us, we start to get an inkling of this possibility and then we apply it in our lives. So with this contemplation on anatta, so there's an inkling of what the Buddha might have been referring to by selflessness, that this self that we perceive ourselves to be is not ultimate. Anatta, atta is self, anatta is not self. All conditions are not self. Including, including the unconditioned reality is not self. Sabe, dhamma, anatta, all conditioned phenomena and unconditioned phenomena is not self. Now, again, we need to be careful not to get into a, an academic exercise here, just trying to think our way out of this. If we do that, well then, what is it that's doing the thinking? There's a self, there's a me, there's an I that's doing the thinking. That's what we need to be investigating. What is the actuality of this perception, this self-structure, this me? Well, if we can trigger interest in that, well, we start asking ourselves that question. As the Buddha said, I cannot actually awaken you, I can point the way. So all these teachings are pointing the way. When the Buddha taught us about anatta, he was giving direction to a path that is worth following. However, he can't awaken us. So we can't ask somebody else about the truth of anatta and expect to get an answer. We maybe can ask somebody how they contemplate it and how they engage these teachings. However, we need to ultimately ask ourselves. So we do that. We just ask ourselves, who is it who doesn't want to prepare the packed lunch for the kids tomorrow? Who is it? Who is this I? Who is asking these questions? You can ask those questions while preparing the packed lunch. It may not be such a refined inquiry, or you can ask those questions when you're putting the clothes in the washing machine, or you can ask those questions when you're mowing the lawn. Who is walking up and down mowing the lawn? This is if a householder does it, and with the situation they find themselves in, and so on, likewise in the monastic community. I can remember very early on in my years in Thailand, I hope I get the details right, but what I remember was somebody telling me this story about how Ajahn Phan, one of the great teachers uh, uh, around the same era as Ajahn Chah and Ajahn Mahabur, and and then Ajahn Phan was a disciple of Ajahn Man, and he was feeling challenged by fear in his practice. and So he went to see Ajahn Man and asked him about how to approach fear. And Ajahn Man's question was, who is afraid? So that can be the inquiry. Who? If you're living in a monastery, it might be sitting there really hungry, really want to start eating, but we've taken on this training of discipline and intentional frustration because we want to see to the root causes of 
of unawareness and, and see if we can see beyond those habits that compound the dysfunction that we find ourselves living as. So we're sitting there and you know, if we don't inquire, we just sit there sweating and salivating and feeling grumpy and say, what's the problem with the Ajahn? Why can't he just ring the bell? And, and, and as soon as he rings the bell, I'm going to start eating my cookies first because I love cookies. And personally, I love cookies as well, although these days I don't, I, I stay well away from sugar, but if I had my way, I'd just, <laughs> I'd just live on, on, on Kaiser cooking. And, you know, for those of you who don't speak German, that's German cheesecake. And just Kaiser cooking and flapjacks that would, and, and cups of coffee with lashings of honey in it. That would be what I would live on because my taste buds like that. However... I've learned, thankfully, at last, by this stage of life, that it doesn't do my body any good, so I stay well away from it. However, I still like it. So, what do we do with that impulse? I want to eat sugar. I do. When I walk down the, the line with the food laid out there, there's regularly these really super yummy looking cookies and cakes, and I want to eat them. What do we do with that? Well, we can inquire. Who wants to eat sugar? It's not a pointless struggle that we're engaged in. This is an intentional struggle. Of course, living a life of discipline is a struggle. Of course, sitting meditation longer than we want to, more often than we want to, of course it's a struggle. But there's a point to this struggle. A lot of the struggle that we spend our lives dealing with is, is not, not a lot of point to it. It's pointless. It leads to further struggle. But the struggles that come from right practice, the struggles that lead to the ending of struggles. And so this inquiry, who is struggling with wanting to eat sugar? Who wants to stop smoking cigarettes? Now, making that inquiry doesn't depend on living in a monastery or being a householder. It depends on having our interest in the reality of self quickened. Having the interest in finding out for ourselves the reality of this me, this I, that's at the so much of the source of our struggles. Mm. So, investigating anatta in terms of practice and feel for the quality of interest that we have in being free from this, the feeling of limitation that is the experience of me and my way. It always keeps rearing its ugly head I don't want to do this. I want to do that. And why can't I get this? How can I get rid of that? Can we get really interested in the reality of that phenomenon? Not just judgmental about it. Not just intellectualizing about it and moralizing about it. 
but get really interested in it. And then, just as we would refine down the skill we might be developing and using something like a, a lathe, if you're turning turning a piece of wood on a lathe, and in the beginning when you, you learn to do that and how you hold the chisel and how you lean into the piece of wood and the honing down that craft of turning wood or honing down the skill of playing a musical instrument or hone down your skill of cooking food. We understand that principle of honing down a skill. Well, likewise, honing down the skill of inquiring into the nature of self is the practice of cultivating the Buddhist teachings on anatta. Yes, it's true that we find ourselves sometimes in more conducive, refined, subtle situations, and other times you find yourself very coarse. And you know, if you you're tired from work you were doing the day before, and you wake up in the morning and you haven't washed your face yet, and haven't had a cup of tea yet, and well, trying to ask who doesn't want to get out of bed, and maybe doesn't. You know, maybe just <laughs> go back to sleep again. So you know, it's, it's true that in some situations it's it's going to be easier than others. However, if we find the suggestion of the inquiry encouraging, then I would say find our own way of cultivating it, not looking for just the right situation. And and if we do feel conflicted. Who feels conflicted? I would say that we can have faith, we can trust in the potential of the just knowing selfless awareness to receive that perception of disharmony. If we're still going for refuge to the world, well then we make a problem out of the disharmony and we make a problem out of the situation we're in. But that's something that we're doing, that's something we're adding to the situation. We're adding that. Maybe we don't have to. So the second question, somebody here is asking me to speak about selfless giving. Certainly, selfless giving, when we witness it, is very beautiful and very moving. And maybe we could ask why are we so moved by it before we start contemplating how we might exercise it why are we so moved by it well it's because we know the opposite we know what selfishness is we intuitively know that we're dangerous when we're being selfish we know that somebody else is selfish, self-obsessed, self-centered. That they're not particularly trustworthy. And that intuitively, when we see somebody being selfless, serving others, able to forget about their self-interest, there's something very beautiful. It's very easy to be moved to tears by such beauty when you see selflessness in action. 
so we can be drawn and inspired and encouraged by that beauty, how do we possibly find it within ourselves? Well, I would say that it's only possible to be engaged in selfless giving if we have some perspective on the self. This I, this me, this my way. I think it's a particularly unfortunate aspect of spirituality, at least in the English-speaking world, that somehow the ego has been demonized. The word ego is just referring to the self-structure, to the personality. And if we didn't have one, we would be in big trouble. It takes about seven years to get something like a functioning sense of self established in a human being and and then another seven years to learn to be reasonably competent in living out of that structure. And it would be good if at around that age human beings were introduced to teachings on the, the relativity of the self structure. Unfortunately that doesn't usually happen and, and for many people it never happens. As followers of the Buddhist teaching, of course, we have had the good fortune to have the suggestion put to us that this self-structure is not what it looks like. And so there's an encouragement to try and get a perspective on it. I think I mentioned last week that most traditional religions aim to equip people with the skills to avoid being self-obsessed, self-centered, because they are born out of the predicament that human beings find ourselves in of how painful it is when we're self-obsessed and self-centered. So that's what most of conventional religion is about, is giving people this protection. The ways that it's taught, of course, vary a lot. And in the Buddha's teaching, besides all the Encouragement to be generous, to be forgiving, to be kind, to be patient, which certainly all have an important function. There's the most important function of developing our attention so as to be able to inquire directly. To, to be able to steady attention, to, to equip our hearts and minds with enough mindfulness and wise reflection so as to be able to ask this all-important question, what is this self-structure? What is this ego? What is this personality? And hopefully get to the point where we start to see, well, there's not a problem with the self-structure. There's not a problem with the ego. It's not a problem with the personality. There doesn't have to be any sort of problem. To say there's a problem with having an ego or a personality is like saying that there's a problem with looking in the mirror and seeing a reflection of yourself or looking into a pool of water and you see a reflection of yourself. That's just part of a natural phenomenon. If you're a human being on planet Earth, this is what happens to us. We see these reflections. And, and that reflection, that self-image, is just a part of how we function in life. It doesn't have to be anything wrong with it. Where it does become a serious issue of concern is when awareness collapses around it and finds identity as that image. 
And so instead of being aware of all the sights and sounds and the stimulus of life, we lose ourselves in the activity. We're no longer abiding as awareness, but we're abiding as the activity that's taking place within awareness. And so even though somebody might manifest selfless giving and we find it beautiful and inspiring and uplifting and we might be motivated to be selfless ourselves, if there's a great big me trying to be selfless, well, that's obviously not going to work. So I would very strongly encourage, if we're interested in cultivating selfless giving, that we listen to the Buddha's teachings and encouragement to inquire into what is the nature of self? What is this ego? Do we have to demonize the sense of self? When we do demonize it, there's a real risk that we actually don't pay attention to it and even be getting around pretending we don't have one. And it's uh, doubly difficult. And nobody's looking after this sense of self. There is a sense of self. It's necessary to be a sense of self. And it's necessary that we look after it. And it's necessary, from the Buddhist perspective, that we study it and we understand it. This sense of me is not a problem unless we believe this sense, this impression, this activity, to be who and what I really am, to be the all of me. So being obsessed by the sense of self is painful. However, as we were just chanting again in the Dhamma Chakra Sutta, that pain, that's a message. And the message is telling us we're hanging on to the wrong thing. We're identified as something that is inherently unstable. We're making a self out of something that is not secure. And so of course we feel frustrated, and of course we feel disappointed, of course we feel let down. But once again, that's not the problem with the self. The difficulty comes when we're identified as that. And of course this is not something to be believed in. It's a suggestion to feed into our minds, our hearts, our, our awareness, and then to consider. And so as we exercise, for instance, we meditation exercise of bringing the heart and mind and body to stillness, exercising discipline of attention, and we maybe reach a point of some relative calm and a sense of contentment and ease, and then there's an impression arises in the mind. Like, I would like a cup of coffee and some cookies. What do we do with that? Do we judge that and say, I shouldn't be wanting coffee and cookies, I should get back to my meditation? Or is our quality of attentiveness, of steadiness, secure enough so we can leave our meditation object and turn and look at that, I want to go and have coffee and cookies? Or I want to send a text message to somebody? Or I want to go to bed, I'm tired of meditating. Can we direct attention towards that movement and get interested in it? Hopefully remembering that there's the knowing of that movement and the movement. 
hopefully remembering there's the awareness and there's the activity of awareness. And then maybe gently asking, inquiring into who wants to go and have coffee and cookies or who wants to stop meditating right now. Now when we're doing this, as I was mentioning a minute ago, we need to refine our effort down because if we're if we allow our greedy impulse to come in, we can get quite demanding. And, you know, I'm asking some questions here. I want some answers. Well, it doesn't, doesn't work like that. That's, that's why it's so important that we have this opportunity to train ourselves to go for refuge to awareness itself and go for refuge to the Buddha, not going for refuge to the world. And once again, the world is all that activity. If we cling to that, then there's this feeling of limitation manifests. Our habits of clinging create this impression of limited being. And we end up thinking like, I can't take this anymore. What is that, what is that experience of I can't take this anymore? In reality, what is that experience of I can't handle this? I can't take this. Really, what is that? That is a limitation on awareness that we have just imposed. We have established that perception of limited being because we didn't know what we were doing. It's not because we're bad or mad, or maybe a little bit mad, but hopefully not too mad. It's not because we're bad that we're doing it, it's just because we don't see, we haven't understood yet. So that's the, inv in the invitation is to investigate, get interested in what is this self-structure really? What is the personality. Let's not be so quick to judge it. And yes, of course, deluded egoity, well, that's a massive issue. But ego itself does not have to be a problem. It's the identification with the self-structure that gets us into trouble. So if we're inspired by and encouraged by selflessness, and then we, you know, I'd like to cultivate that, well, the plenty of opportunities to, to exercise it, but whilst we're doing things, as, for instance, of being generous or being patient with somebody or being kind to somebody, let's also, let's also have going on in the background on another level, on another frequency, on another dimension of awareness, let's also have this inquiry of who wants to be selfless? Who wants to be generous? Who wants to appear as a good person? Now, we're not asking that just from an intellectual perspective. We're asking it because we're deeply interested in resolving this tangle, this knot, this pain. And as with any pain, if we are not subtle in our attention, we can make it much worse. There was another question that somebody sent me today, which I don't have me, with me right now, but it was, it was expressing frustration at how uh, this craving is like an octopus that just keeps grabbing us here and there. And you know, why does it keep doing that? And, and the, the person was commenting how they'd gotten used to appreciating a perspective of awareness and, and having some sense of what they were dealing with 
only to find that after a period of time they were then clinging to the pleasant feeling of having some perspective. And at least the way they were asking the question, it was sounding like they were getting frustrated at that point. Well, what is frustration? Frustration is suffering. What is the feeling of suffering? It's the message. That's, you know, that's not something to indulge in and, and to get upset about. That's actually something we should feel good about. How, how much practice must it take to get to the point where we can actually see what we're doing that is creating this feeling of limited being? That takes a lot of good effort. So when we feel frustrated, if instead of collapsing into it and becoming me frustrated at my limited progress on the path, if we can expand and rem remember that I go for refuge to selfless awareness, remember that, just knowing, remember that. And then the frustration is something we appreciate. So, all right, there we are again. It's like another level. It's a habit. It's the habitual inclination of the heart. That's why the Buddha gave the example of like taking a fish out of the water and it's flapping around on dry land. So it is, he said, withdrawing from the forces of Mara, from the state of deluded, limited being. It feels very uncomfortable, very difficult, because we're not familiar with it. And the habit of clinging will keep manifesting here, then there, and we, we think we've got it, and then it shows somewhere else. So it encourages us in our commitment to keep going, and also in our willingness to begin again. As no matter how often we get stuck and impose some feeling of limitation on awareness, as soon as we see it, say, oh, thank you, thank goodness for these teachings, I can see what I'm doing and begin again. So there's a question which says, I have noticed there was a kind of desperation in my metta practice, even to the extent of uncomfortable feeling around the heart when using the phrase, may others be well. So how to really work on that from a place of well-being rather than a place of desperately hoping that others will be well? It's helpful and I would say uh, it really matters if we notice where and when and how we tend to make suffering wrong. There's pain, once again. Pain is a message. and So in this person experiencing pain around the heart and the practice of cultivating metta and kindness and and then it seems like they're disappointed with that however really that feeling of pain that's the message that's the opportunity to say yes and receive the pain receive the pain into just knowing awareness remember to perhaps take a deep breath and expand the body making the physical gesture of creating space. That symbolic gesture of creating space in the body, maybe 
triggers for us an increased spaciousness inwardly whereby we can accommodate this pain. It doesn't really matter where the pain's coming from. Pain is a symptom of limited being, of clinging to something. So instead of allowing our minds to go out with hoping that others be well as a result of our kindness meditation, let's stay at home, let's, let's take responsibility for that which is really ours, which is the state of our own capacity to receive reality here and now. That's our responsibility. The capacity to receive reality here and now. And if what we're registering here and now is a state of limited being and the pain of that, let's receive it. Let's not judge it, let's receive it. And maybe from that perspective, in that here and now appreciation of the pain of limited being, maybe out of that we can give rise to what is perhaps more karuna or compassion rather than metta, kindness, which is the thought, the wish, the motivation that may beings be free from suffering. If we've already got a lot of pain and most people already have a lot of pain, it can be quite difficult to really progress with developing conscious kindness or metta bhavana. And there is, I would suggest, a, a very real risk that we're we're putting skin cream over a boil. Not everybody has got such pain, and for some people it may work marvellously. But if we haven't really acknowledged the degree of unreceived life that we're carrying, of unreceived pain that we've stored away, if we haven't really acknowledged that, then all these spiritual exercises, every time they start kicking in, every time the medicine starts to take, and we start to feel the pain, there's a risk that we'll just get judgmental of it. What's called for is how to be really here, really now, really with, really able to receive ourselves in our state of limitation, to fully consciously receive it. If we do that, well then, it's probably not difficult. In fact, it's probably the most natural thing to register the wish, may I be free from suffering. We can be so quick in such a hurry to get over our suffering, to be successful, to be good Buddhists, to be successful meditators who are not suffering anymore, that we don't even notice that we're suffering. We're not even getting the message. And it's been hours, years, developing strategies for avoiding suffering. There may be somewhat spiritual strategies like cultivating conscious kindness or cultivating states of concentration. But they can also just be strategies for avoiding pain. Now, talking like this, it might sound like overemphasis on the pain, and, but remembering once again, the middle way is that perspective that's able to witness the tendency to get lost in liking itself, the tendency to get lost in disliking. 
So we're not talking about indulging in pain, but we're also not talking about getting lost in comfort, appreciating the potential to stay in that place of balance. If our cultivation of loving-kindness gives rise to a sense of pain, the question is how do we receive it? And if we really receive it here and now, I would encourage giving rise to that thought, may I be free from suffering? And if that's too much, well then maybe we can think of somebody that we care about a lot and imagine them having to endure such an experience of limitation and, and then feel the natural arising of the feeling of may they be freed from such pain. May they not have to go through such a difficult experience. There it is. That's compassion. That's the warmth of the human heart beginning to emerge and hopefully it'll soften us and generate that thought not just towards ourselves but also towards others. And in a somewhat similar theme, there's a question on equanimity, which says, how can a level of equanimity be developed and maintained in the face of current challenges? Dealing with metta and karuna, and we could mention mudita, and now also upekar, equanimity, conscious cultivation of kindness, cultivation of compassion, cultivation of empathetic joy and the cultivation of equanimity, the, the four Brahma-viharas. And it's worth, I think, at the outset mentioning how essential and noteworthy it is, the emphasis the Buddha put on equanimity, not just in these, this gathering, the four divine abidings of the four Brahma-viharas, but also the seven factors of enlightenment. The final one is equanimity. And I'm always quite quick to mention that I'm very much a beginner when it comes to uh, equanimity. However, at least to some degree, uh, theoretically, I can suggest that what we were talking about earlier in terms of going for refuge to the Buddha with the Buddha as selfless awareness can be the key. So long as we're giving emphasis to the conditions of the world, they're always going to be agreeable, disagreeable, or plain old neutral. And we can be moving around from one to the other endlessly. However, if we allow ourselves to fall back, to trust in that in which all this is arising and ceasing, in the knowingness, in the awareness, the just knowing awareness. Go for refuge to the Buddha. And remember the example I mentioned sometime recently of using the metaphor of the space of this room to symbolize awareness. The space of this room doesn't change with what passes through it. 
awareness doesn't mind at all what arises and ceases within it. If we can give emphasis to that, if we can make that the priority, and we go for refuge to the Buddha, then maybe that'll take us in the direction of equanimity. And so looking at the situation that we find ourselves in these days, with so much intensity, when is the lockdown going to end? What will the world be like once we start moving around again? Will the economy recover? What will happen to people who have been so traumatised by the consequences of loss of family and loss of money? That intensity could indeed, certainly, give rise to worry, anxiety, speculation. Be understandable if it did. However, is there a way of getting a perspective on that? From the perspective of just knowing awareness, the future could be really, really terrible, but awareness has the potential for just knowing it. Or the future could be really wonderful. It could be a transformative phase we're going through. This is a turning point in humanity. From the perspective of just knowing awareness, both those possibilities could be real. If we remember that, we may not be able to fully realise it. Almost certainly won't be able to fully realise it. But if we remember it as a possibility, if we hold it up, if we say, I go for refuge to the Buddha, then there's a possibility that we'll have a taste of equanimity. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. Oh, my God.